step right up and gather around. Tall folks, kindly at the back, please. I am Professor Gruntsplatter, and I'm the curator of this here spookatorium. Through these doors are wonders and horrors, and maybe even a laugh or two. From the dark corners on every street today, all back through recorded time. You'll hear music and tales of the unknown, mysterious, and perhaps even diabolical. That's right, folks. There are strange things beyond this threshold. But if you weren't curious, you wouldn't be here. So, will you take a chance and come on in? Or will you saddle up to the concession stand and always wonder what you may have missed? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Professor Gruntsplatter's Spookatorium. There will be no refunds once you enter. Thank you for your attention, and the brave ones, come with me.
Greetings. Welcome to episode 23 of Professor Gruntsplatter's Spookatorium. I am Professor Gruntsplatter. Uh, the first track you heard was uh, Harvest Man with a track called Over Nine Waves. Following that was Bad Sector with Search. And the last track there was Hollenfurt with Amel. I didn't have time to really put a whole lot up on the site or anything at all, really, since the last episode. So there's no... Uh, no catching up to do. So, with that, we'll get right to it. We find ourselves in the Spookatorium Portraiture Gallery, home to all manner of askew personality and the eccentric characters of history. Listen close as we delve into their stories. In the early 1800s, Thomas Dyatt was a shoeshine in Philadelphia. With the money he made from creating and selling his own shoe polish, he ventured into developing his own line of family medicines, which he named after a fictional Dr. Robertson. With these concoctions, Dyatt became the first patent medicine man to achieve national recognition, nearly half a century before the phenomenon really took off. Dyatt claimed this Dr. Robertson was his grandfather and esteemed physician from Edinburgh, but even when revelations that there was no record that a Dr. Robertson had practiced there in the last two centuries, it did little to dent Dyatt's growing popularity or sales of Robinson's infallible worm-destroying lozenges, celebrated gout drops, circassian dry water, vegetable nervous cordial, or patent itch ointment. Dyatt eventually anointed himself with the title Doctor of Medicine, which only furthered his sales and market presence, although he was not actually a doctor. He ended up buying his own glass works along the Delaware River in 1833 to produce the bottles he needed without having to pay the English import prices. These bottles have come to be quite valuable on the antique collector market, and one even sits in the Smithsonian Institute graced with... uh, a picture of Benjamin Franklin on one side and of Dyatt himself on the other, both sons of Philadelphia in his mind. He transformed the site of the glassworks into his own skewed version of a utopian village, which he christened Dyatville for the 450 employees in his care. Rules there included no gambling, no swearing, no drinking, uh, despite the fact that his medicines did contain alcohol, as most of the patent medicines did. Um... Workers were expected to bathe and attend church, and those that broke the rules had their paychecks docked. His labor practices were quite suspect, from working people 12 months a year, uh, which was uncommon at the time, to employing vast amounts of children, uh, some of them as young as six. He saw all of this as a way to combat what he saw as a pervasive moral deficiency. Uh, 20 years prior to the Civil War, which began in 1862, Dyatt was making $25,000 a year and living on a quarter million dollar estate with operations in four states altogether. His wealth and perceived moral authority did prompt him to sell his medicines to the working poor at half price. Whether that was to their benefit or not could probably be argued. Dyatt eventually sought to launch a bank for the people of Dyatville, but when the panic of 1837 hit, whereupon every bank stopped payment in gold and silver coin, and a five-year depression followed, the bank crumbled. Diet scattered his wealth among his relatives and declared bankruptcy, 
ultimately, he was convicted of fraudulent insolvency since he wasn't actually broke and served a prison sentence for that. He was able to get back on his feet rather quickly upon release, however, and rebuild his financial standing before he ultimately died in 1861 at the age of 90 years old. Nur für dich die Welt dreht sich, nur 
das Licht und balder wird dich wärmen, wenn du da niederliegst. Und Kraft wird er dir schenken, die du mir täglich gibst. Was wir gepflanzt in Ewigkeit strebt immer zu empor. Zu zweit, zu einem Stamm vereint, stark wie nie zuvor, wie nie zuvor.
I've got 36 states in three different countries. My victims never knew what was going to happen. I've had shootings, knifings, strangulations, beatings, and I've participated in actual crucifixions of the humans. All across the country, there's people just like me who's set out to destroy human life. was Zimpatigo with Boneyard before that Frontline Assembly with Victim, uh, Liebenslicht from Balborn before that, and opening that setup was Garment Bosia with Ugly. This would be a good time to say that if you hear one of your tracks on the show and you don't want your track on the show, let me know. I will remove it. Um, if you want to get in touch, uh, the website address is www.spookatorium.org and the email address is professor at spookatorium.org Gather round and hear treatments and tales of the medicine wagon and the spookatorium's rolling apothecary It does a body good
Psychiatry has a history of sensationalistic overstatements that ambitious, and I would argue unscrupulous, practitioners have used to gain media attention, sell books, and take advantage of people. Two recent examples would be the exaggerated multiple personality diagnosis and the repressed memory phenomenon. Both are real conditions, and both have also been exploited and overreported to the benefit of headline-grabbing talk show touring psychiatrists. Frequently, this comes at the expense of the people in their care and those close to the people in their care. Repressed memory syndrome was at the heart of the satanic panic fad. Uh, it plays a large role in abduction reports, and numerous innocent people have been accused of all manner of horrific things that they did not do based on what psychiatrists have cloaked coaxed out of their clients and are the guise of repressed memories. I could do a whole piece about that, but it's not the point today. I mention it really only as background. I've done a few stories about the Catholic Church and exorcism recently. While I'm not a fan of organized religion, I'm also not on a crusade against it. So in fairness and equal skepticism, I give you spirit release, psychiatry's answer to exorcism. The premise being that some severe forms of mental illness are the result of malicious spirits being attached to the sufferer. Deanna O'Brien of the Spirit Release Foundation, who boasts an unspecified degree in psychology and a counseling certificate, describes it thusly, quote, Traditionally, these attached beings have been held to be responsible for various emotional, mental, and physical problems. A person can be affected by an attached spirit in many different ways. The discarnate entity retains the knowledge of its own ailments before death and can produce in the host symptoms of physical illness. Discarnate entities are also able to connect emotionally to their host, exacerbating any negative emotions and thought patterns that may be present, such as depression, anxiety, anger, fear, guilt, or shame. Some are able to give the sensation of voices in the head, particularly where the patient may be unknowingly clairvoyant. Attached entities are most often found to be earthbound spirits, the surviving consciousness of deceased humans, the disembodied consciousness being able to influence thought, emotions, and behavior of the host. A sudden traumatic death or a strong loving connection may cause a spirit to become earthbound. Equally, drug, alcohol, or food dependencies in life may cause the deceased to continue craving the addiction and needing to satisfy it by connecting to a living person. Some people simply don't realize they're dead and lose their way, seeking companionship with the living. Other types of attached entities may be thought forms, a projection of consciousness from another living person, subpersonalities of the patient, or non-human entities such as substance spirits, elementals, dark force entities, or extraterrestrials. Unquote. The justification presented here is that for centuries, shamans and healers and religious thinkers have pointed to spirit possession and sought to relieve the afflicted. True enough, but that is what psychiatry was a reaction to, to understand the brain in ways that earlier generations did not and find physiological explanations for behavior that was outside the norm and understand it through measurable science and brain chemistry rather than faith and mysticism. Everything old is new again as the Spirit Release Foundation, founded in 1999, boasts a membership of some 150 and offers training courses, has conferences, and produces newsletters and other writings on the subject of spirit release. Among their officials and administrative council ranks, 
I count a mere two with credentials attached to their names. The site also lists known practitioners, but does not vouch for them. Instead, it links to the organization's code of conduct, but clearly states they take no responsibility for any of the practitioners listed. Case studies on the site also refer to multiple personalities, uh, satanic ritual abuse, uh, past life memories, um, and people they've helped that were under serious health strains and invasive treatments like chemotherapy. The story of Pete is how I came to discover the site. Pete is a 50-something man whose solid marriage and generally happy life began to fall apart shortly after his mother died. He began to have physical symptoms like gastrointestinal problems, severe headaches, hot flashes, rashes, and even hallucinations. His behavior changed and he undertook a series of affairs threatening what was a previously good marriage. Reportedly, doctors could not find a reason for these issues aside from the growing pile of stresses in his life on top of the death of his mother. Through hypnotherapy, it was determined that Pete had a past life as a small boy in Tibet who was murdered, and that he had some sort of parasitic spirit living in his colon named Askinra. The therapist claims to have had conversations with the spirit independent of Pete while Pete was under hypnosis. It claims that it entered Pete's body when he was the small boy on the edge of death in this past life, and he's been with him ever since. They also determined that the Chinese soldier that killed the boy is within Pete as well. The soldier is then convinced to let go of the anger that caused him to stab this child, and then the spirit Askinra is released from Pete all of Pete's physical symptoms cease, after which the therapist claims that it is a success. There is a whole lot of presumption and suggestion going on here and a scant amount of science. If you want to do this same thing and call yourself a witch doctor or a shaman, then knock yourself out. But seeing this kind of thing passed off as science genuinely irritates me because of the credibility, right or wrong, that we give to the medical community as having special knowledge and how much of that knowledge is viewed as truth. Science is an attempt to quantify faith in a lot of regards, and in many cases it's been able to achieve that. However, theories believed to be truth are often overturned when new knowledge comes to light. It's not as factual as it would have us believe, and I don't know that faith is always as esoteric as it would have us believe either. There's a middle ground in there where they overlap that holds the obscure truths that no one seems to be able to sort out, and zealots and charlatans have no place there. It could be argued that at its most harmless, this is a placebo therapy, and if it resolves the issue in the mind of the sufferer, then it ultimately has done no harm. Having spent three years working with psychiatric patients myself, I've seen how religious and spiritual antagonism can also feed their illnesses and frequently be the triggers that send them into a dark time. For any placebo healing that goes on here, I can only imagine the number of folks that have been further troubled or injured in some way by these types of suggestions. There are about a dozen successful case studies listed on the site that's minuscule given the nearly decade they have been a formal organization and the numbers that they claim in their ranks.
was somewhere in Europe with Never Go Back. Before that, Judas Cradle from Goliath. And opening that setup was Lament Configuration with Wire Trip. Um, once again, if you want to get in touch or check out the news stories that are usually up between shows, uh, you can go to the website at www.spookatorium.org or drop an email at professor at spookatorium.org. Mind your fingers and toes as we step to the carousel of cryptids and creeping things that lurk in the shadows of history and along the back roads that stitch your neighborhoods together. In 1835, Mormon missionary David Patton is in the forest of Tennessee when he sees a large naked figure covered in dark hair and engages the creature in conversation. The beast tells Patton that it is a wanderer with no home and leads a miserable life searching for an elusive death that will never come. It is here on a mission, cursed to roam the earth with the goal of destroying the souls of men and cannot leave this tormented life until its mission is a success. Patton denounces the beast's goals in the name of Christ and the priesthood and sends the creature on its way. In 1919, a Hawaiian Mormon missionary named E. Wesley Smith reports that on the eve of dedicating a new mission in Hana on the island of Maui, from what I've been able to pinpoint, he is attacked by a giant hairy creature. Smith states that he was able to rebuke the assault by invoking the name of Christ and driving the creature off. Uh, Smith conferred with his brother following the assault, and they determined, based on scripture, that the creature was likely none other than the biblical Cain of the tale of Cain and Abel. Their point of reference for this revelation comes from Genesis. Uh, it's Genesis 4, uh, 11 through 12. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, you will n it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. This is the evidence that they drudged up to support their theory that, that this creature was Cain. Um, these two tales combined have led segments of the Mormon church to believe that Bigfoot is the earthly tethered biblical Cain. Uh, Genesis goes further to say that God told Cain, who feared he would be killed roaming the land, that anyone who would kill him would have vengeance brought upon them sevenfold. This, I suppose, would seem explanation enough for why there have never been uh, a Sasquatch carcass discovered if you were prone to playing along with this train of thought. These tales have surfaced in official Mormon literature, uh, including the Journal of Mormon History, which published an investigation into the, the uh, Cain-Bigfoot connection. Uh, the Miracle of Forgiveness is another text that looks at the Patton story. And the website uh, Mormons Today gave space to the book Clan of Cain, the Genesis of Bigfoot. And you see how they put the genesis of Bigfoot, and then the story comes from Genesis that it might be Cain. It's tricky. Um, they did that back in 2001. Uh, this clan of Cain is a fictional expansion 
on the idea that uses the patent story as its jumping off point. Um, I had not heard this theory before, um, thanks to uh, Tenzen Monkey's website. Um, they had a little write-up about it the other day as well. So uh, there'll be a link to that and um, a link to uh, this Clan of Cain story in the notes, um, along with links for all of the other stories uh, we've talked about today, if you are interested in checking those out.
That was Gorathoth with Church of Gorathoth. Before that, Dee Verbanten Kinder Avas with Craving Dreams, and opening that setup was Nexus from Bethlehem. That is going to do it for episode 23 of Professor Gruntsplatter's Spookatorium. If you have any stories, if you have any comments or feedback, please get in touch at professor at spookatorium.org. And be sure to check out the website. It's www.spookatorium.org. Playing underneath me today has been water with exhibiting contents from the hybrids. And I am going to finish this off with a track from Rare Hunter called Woodlore Communion. (laughs) 